Last week, we attributed the song Creep to the band Creep. This was, of course, a mistake. Creep was, of course, performed by Frank Bennett. Mm. We apologise to music fans and stands everywhere. We will not make this mistake again. Oh, sorry, that's the emergency correction hotline. I... I better get that. Hello? Yes, darling. Of course, darling. No, no, we didn't know that, darling. Yes, I'll give Josh your love, darling. Bye, darling. An important correction? Yes, apparently it's not Bennett, but it's Bennett. Oh, so two T's rather than one. Yes. Well, that, that could have been a costly mistake. Frank gets quite litigious. Good thing you got that spotted quickly. Precisely. And once again, the podcast is error-free. So let's roll the theme and get cracking with this week's episode. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. Uh, I am Josh Addison, they are Dr. M. Dentith. We are both in, in Auckland, but not in the same place. Because in we are under lockdown, level three lockdown. Yes, for all another, the fun one of those, another one of those pesky lockdowns on... Um, Came in on, on Sunday morning, technically, but I was still out at 10 o'clock on Saturday night picking my boys up from a hastily cancelled scout camp. That was entertaining. Uh, but yes, we've had some... I, I think we mentioned this last time. We had a little three-day lockdown, which the was, Valentine's was over Day before lockdown. it began. A Valentine's Day lockdown. Uh, and a lot of people were like, oh, I wonder if we came out of that lockdown too fast. And possibly it it, it looks like we did. So it turns been, out that uh, the, we've got another... the cluster we've got mm. is basically related to the Valentine's Day cluster mm. due to a cluster fudge due to the contact tracing around that cluster, which appears to have turned into a little bit of a political scandal with the family saying one thing, the Prime Minister saying another thing, and the communitariat going, well, we don't know what to believe, so we're just going to divide ourselves on partisan lines. Mm. Yes, I think this time around there's been, it seems like there's a greater sense that somebody wants someone to blame for this one. And there have been stories coming up of people doing things they should not have done, but um, all, all, all going well. I think we're now four days with no more cases found. So the lockdown was due to end uh, this Sunday. So barring anything anything uh, weird happening over the next day or two, we should be out of it again. But um, for now, we're socially distant. And this is going to explain some a little bit of lag in our call tonight. Mm. Because as yes, we're doing we're this over Zoom... Again. And there appears to be a little bit of an issue with our connection in that there's a bit of a lag between my stopping speaking and joshing starting. Joshing starting? Oh dear, this is getting very mm. confusing already. <clears throat> I'm going to blame the lag on uh, that one. But also it's going to be cases the joshing of, starts. of people talking over other people because there's also a bit of visual lag as well. Mm. And presumably cases of one of us stopping and then... Was actually you doing a joke there, or literally, it's lag. This is going to be great. No, 
No, I'm sure that was just lag. Anyway, um, so we, we actually, we've got just an ordinary episode this time around. It's not, it's not uh, an academic paper. It's not one of us trying to, to fool the other. Um, it's just, just, just plain a, a thing that involves conspiracies that we want to talk about. But before that, Dr. Dentith, have you been trawling through Naomi Wolf's tweets again? You know yes. what I've said about this. Yes, I well, have. What, have. what have you found this time? Right, so on the 24th or the 25th of March, depending on where in the world you were, Naomi Wolf tweeted the following. Actually, this is one of these things where you could actually flash this up on the video version of the vodcast to put the little screen cap of the tweet. Because the tweet goes thus. I might just do Terrifying. Also confirms slash explains the conversation I overheard in a restaurant in Manhattan two years ago in which an Apple employee was boasting about attending a top-secret demo. They had a new tech to deliver vaccines via nanoparticles. She didn't actually write particles. She wrote nanoparticles that let you travel back in time. Not kidding. Yeah, you... I'm not sure what's the worst part of that sentence. I think it's the not kidding. Because up up until then, you could think uh, nanoviruses delivering nanoparticles that let you travel back in time does sound like the sort of thing you'd see on on, on like an old episode of Brass Eye or something when they're taking the piss out of strange uh, but, but apparently, you know, she was not kidding and she was not kidding that she was not kidding. No. Now, I've been working on a suite of papers about how we conspiracy theorise in the age of the novel coronavirus. And part of that investigation has been looking into how certain people appear to have gone down the rabbit hole, given the beginning and the middle and the not-quite-end of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Naomi Wolf is a great example of that, because she started off back in March of or April of last year as simply someone who was concerned that civil liberties were being restricted when it came to our response to the novel coronavirus, COVID-19. And now she's in this really weird position where she appears to be talking about time travel nanoparticles delivering vaccines either from the future or in the past. And she's made a variety of pretty weird claims recently, such as, and this is from the 27th or the 28th of February, you know, I read the Madonna website and the sources in my video about how the mRNA is not actually a vaccine, but a software platform. I actually work with developers who create software, so I understand how dangerous it is to have a tech in one's body that can receive uploads. Sounds like she's misunderstanding an analogy as being literally true. I, I guess you, you could, like, if, if, if someone wanted to explain how mRNA works, I could imagine them saying uh, it's, it's a bit like how software works and how you can download updates for your software and mRNA lets you, or an mRNA vaccine lets you sort of download an update for your immune system, but it's not actually, it's not actually software and it's not actually downloading an update. And I'm suddenly aware of just how New Zealandy my accent is when I say actually a lot, but that's beside the point. It's true. It's spelled... A-K-S-T-U-L-L-Y. Something like that, yes. Uh, Mm. And just one more tweet just to uh, round off the the way in which Naomi Wolf talks to people online. This is from the 23rd or the 24th of February. 
How can you describe people as not yet immunized if they don't get the vaccine? They are immunized. They have an immune system. It is very tendacious, inaccurate language. It seems to imply that we sh- we are immune to everything all the time. Well, I mean, don't you have an immune or, system, or Josh? Neither. I do have an immune system, and 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 I am immune to a number of diseases, but not all of all right. them. List so when a new three. one comes along, I must be immune. I I assume I'm immune to smallpox, and polio. Isn't that how it works? Or do are we not immune anymore? But we don't have to be. Well, I mean, polio um, technically is eradicated, so you don't need jab for that. Hmm. Smallpox does still does mean... persist in some communities around the world, but of course we've actually yes. got readily available treatments and vaccines. So give me, hmm. give me one more thing you think you're immune to, Mister Science Guy. We, we get the MMR one, don't we? Measles, mumps, and rubella, or is it just girls who get that one? No, I, I can't think, remember. I, I think yeah. I think everyone goes through the schedule. Although we are of the generation where we probably need booster shots. Yes, I know there was there was one that because it can have effects on fetuses was given to girls, either only girls or girls before it was given to boys because there was more of a, uh, more of a, a risk there or something. But yeah, I I'm, I'm pretty sure I've had my jabs. I've I've had I've had needles in my arm and not in the fun way, um, so I assume I I must have a bunch of a bunch of immunities floating around and that now, I'm not you know sick all the time. And... Get, apart from the COVID nineteen ones, the shingles vaccine. The... Yes, probably. We're 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 technically middle aged. And Unless, I mean, so I, I mean, mum has shingles and absolutely hates it. I actually don't think anyone ever talks about having shingles and having a good no. time. But if you've They're had really chicken pox, no, no. then you can get shingles and shingles will give you permanent nerve da- damage. So you probably want the shingles vaccine to ensure you don't get shingles. Shingles, they're mm. bad. Hello. This ad mm. paid for by Big right. Anti Shingle. Mm. Anyway, enough enough disease. Um, shall we get into the the main main uh, topic of today's podcast, or do you have anything else to to administer before no, we do? That's basically it. I just say get the shingles vaccine. Okay. Right. Oh, well, then play that funky chime. They don't come any funkier than that, I have to say. Now, the subject of this week's episode is one that the good Dr. Dentith brought to my attention a few weeks ago. How did you find out about it? So I found out it through friend of the show, Charlotte Red. That's her Twitter handle, who basically was lamenting the fact that because I'm already meant to be in China by now, she had just listened to the podcast and was really quite annoyed we wouldn't be able to meet up and chat about it. Of course, I'm actually still in Auckland, but because of the lockdown, meeting up to talk to people about podcasts isn't really happening at this point in time. Not so, so yeah, no, I found no. out about Bed of Lies through Charlotte, and I then told you about it. And now we're going to spoil the entire thing to our listeners yep. so they won't feel the need to go and listen to it even though they really should, because there's no way we're going to be able to do the thing justice in our podcast. And believe me, the way the story is told is an absolute masterclass 
in making you go, what? They did. What? No, no, that can't be true. Mm. What? No, this is. A, it, it can't get any worse. Oh God, it really does. Mm. Yes. So what we're going to talk about today is the um, Telegraph podcast, Bed of Lies by um, journalist Kara McGugan, which was released, um, the, the, it was, I think, 80 episodes released across November and December of last year. Um, so we're going to spoil the whole thing for you, but um, uh, yes, I, I second the idea that you should actually go and listen to it yourself because it is it does make for good listening. Um, now, the, the podcast, when you listen to it, initially sort of sets things up as a bit of a mystery, which then becomes clearer as it goes through. And uh, we, we might as well follow the same format. So set us up. What's, what's, the, what, what's the hook? So Bed of Lies consists of a series of weird cases involving a number of left-wing activist women in the UK between at least the 1990s and the early... 2010s. And these are all cases of women who entered into relationships with men who turned out to have mysterious pasts. Now, each of these men claimed to have some family trauma in their background, which meant they didn't really want to talk about their past, and also explained why they had no contact with their parents and lived far away from their hometowns. Each of these men had a serious mental breakdown about two years into their relationship with these women. Each of them appeared to be handy to have around the house, so they'd be a joiner, a plumber, or a builder. Each of them owned a van, and thus their role in the activist groups that they were involved in was the person who drove people to and from particular events. Each disappeared about four years after meeting their partners. And in some of the cases, their partners discovered during their relationships that these mysterious men had passports or credit cards under other names, which were often explained away as being stolen or due to identity theft. Mm. So yes, initially it's it's the similarities are what's strange to begin with. Um, in the podcast, they talk to four women called uh, Rosa, Lisa, Ellison, and Lindsay. Those are all pseudonyms um, who didn't know each other to begin with until this story sort of started to come together. Um, Left-wing activists, yes, as you say, spread across the 90s, 2000s, and into the early 2010s, um, and all independently struck up relationships with men that all seem to go in the same way. And, and the, the similarities are quite striking, right down, yes, to the fact that all four of them drove vans, which seems like an inconsequential detail, and yet it was something the same across all of them. Um, it should be said, the, these relationships were, uh, in many cases, long-term committed relationships. Uh, they were sexual relationships, which at least in one case uh, resulted in children. Um, but yeah, there, there, there were there were things which which again, if you saw when you hear it described in, in, in one instance, it's like okay, well that's a thing that happens. But then when you hear the same thing in all four instances, it starts to go weird. So yeah, the um, 
the, the, the family trauma was different in most cases. I think one guy um, at one point talked about how he, you know, had, it came from an abusive, an abusive family and so didn't like to talk to them anymore. Um, another guy at one point when he was sort of further into the relationship with this woman um, sort of took her aside and had a very serious talk with her about where, where he sort of disclosed that he had been adopted and so had sort of, you know, didn't, didn't, didn't know much about his family and where he came from, didn't have much contact with his adoptive family and so on. Um, which which um, explained why they didn't like to talk about their families much and apparently lived quite far away from them. Um, and then, yeah, the 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 breakdowns that being seen to at some point have some sort of a, a panic attack or something like and these that were quite was something that came public across. breakdowns mm. as well. They weren't breakdowns that occurred in a private residence in isolation. Often these breakdowns occurred around their friends and families they were very very mm. public so the, in one of the cases the mysterious man celebrates his 40th birthday they have an absolute raging night and then he doesn't come out of his camper van the next day and they find him in it two days later and he's having anxiety and panic attacks and is questioning exactly what he's meant to be doing and this is going to be something we'll have to come back to once the reveal occurs, because there's something mm. quite interesting about these panic attacks. And they say they all happen about two years into the relationship, or at least two years after the point where these women meet the man in question. Mm. And well, I should also point out the... these are not the same man. We should also point no, out we're yes, not, no, the, the mystery is not going to be each one cases, man. Yes. It, it's four separate men, although I believe two of them end up sharing the same name. Mm. Um, yeah, so um, the interesting, well, Another another weird thing that happens in at least two of the cases, they have stories where the woman would um, find strange artifacts, things that didn't make sense. So one woman discovered a credit card um, seemingly belonging to her partner, uh, but the name on the credit card was not his name. It had the same first name, but a different surname. Um, another woman found a passport, which again had a different surname in it. And that woman, having found that and think that's weird, did a, a little bit of snooping on the guy's devices, I think, and started to find emails um, from uh, children who referred to them referred to the guy as their father. Now, in in these cases, when these things came up, came up, they confronted the men with them, and the men had an explanation. Um, yeah. So for the, the, credit, the card credit card was theft. He had he had basically found a credit card and was using it to buy things online. He was really really ashamed of what he did, and thus didn't want didn't want her to discuss it with any of their friends. With regard to the passport, okay, so, oh, yes, it turns out I do have a passport in a different name, but that's because it's the name of a friend who died and their children now look at me as their father, and I've never mentioned it in the past because I knew it would be a complicated thing to bring up, but they're not my natural children. They simply refer to me as their father because I'm the replacement father figure, although it was never quite clear how, how the passport actually figured into that story. But the important thing was he told a story such that she ended up going, okay, that seems reasonable, I guess even that though I feel... Sort of makes sense. Yeah. 
Mm. Yeah, I think that guy also basically said I had had sort of a criminal past as well, which obviously, you know, he didn't want to bring up because he's ashamed of the the, the things he did um, as a younger man. And that, yes, his, this this friend of his who died, I, th I think that th there were a couple of instances where they would sort of claim to th th that friends of theirs had been killed in drug deals gone wrong or something like that. And I think, yeah, this was a case where his friend had died and he was like, you know, look after my kids and his dying breath or something like that. And so that was what he did. Um, so yeah, th there were there were weird little things popped up, but again, as we say, at this point, each of these women had no idea that the other existed and were were experiencing similar things. Um, but then, about four years into the relationship, um, each man would just disappear, would would leave one day, and and then not be gone. When um, when the woman went to their place, all his stuff would be gone. Um, and I mean, all things would stuff have been would be gone. Any trace of this person's existence was basically surgically removed from the households they were in. Mm. Uh, and the things that were left behind were left suspiciously tidy, was one thing. Um, but yes, I think one guy claimed that he had to go, because obviously this is in England, I'm not sure if we made that clear at the start, but it's for the Telegraph newspaper, so um, this is in England, and of course when you live in England, Europe's just a hop, skip and a jump away, so these guys would sort of claim to need to go to other countries, I think one guy said he had to go to Turkey due to his work or something, but then when she lost contact with him and got in touch with his his supposed boss, the boss was like, no, I, don't, I didn't send him to Turkey and things like that. Um, and so obviously this this was, you know, it's it's one thing for for a boyfriend to ditch you and to ghost you, but a person who you'd been living with, a person who you were in a long-term relation with, to suddenly just disappear, and especially someone who claimed to have had a criminal past to suddenly disappear, that's enough to make you seriously worried. And so several of these women devoted quite a lot of time and effort to tracking these mystery men down. And sometimes that meant accidentally finding them. So at least one case, the woman in question is now working in a bookstore in London, and one day her former partner turns up in the bookstore, and she confronts him and says, oh, look, I've, I've got to... Uh, I can't talk to you right now. Can we talk later? and then they meet after work, and he details why he left and why she needs to keep it secret, and then they enter into another long-term and what turns out to be quite abusive relationship. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, one of the women gets, I think she freely admits herself, got obsessed with, with finding this guy who just disappeared from her life after being such an important part of it. She ended up flying all around the world to other countries where he supposedly had been and coming up with nothing. And then one of them went so far as to hire a detective, hire a private eye to try and, and hunt someone, hunt these people down. And when they couldn't get any hits on the guy's on the name that she knew him as, this was one of the ones who'd found a document under another name and said, okay, well, how about we look for this name this, the, with the same name but a different surname? And um, based on some of the, the, the scant family details that the guy had given, they were able to actually track this person down, um, find documentation for him, find a marriage certificate for him, which had never been canceled 
and his occupation on the marriage certificate was listed as, M, would you please? Police officer. Police officer. And so this is when the penny drops. These four men who had been in long-term relationships with these women were all undercover police officers uh, who'd been assigned to infiltrate these left-wing activist groups to basically spy on and report on them. And the the four years was essentially the end of their, what would you call it, rotation, the end well, of their assignment. Tour. tour. It was and the that end, was them basically end, end, their, end their, their tour. tour. Yep, yeah. tour. That's the word. And that was it. And so then, then things started to come out. Um, and this, we should say, I mean, this, this, this became public in the UK. So possibly, and there's an ongoing there, inquiry mm. on the matter happening right now. Yep. So if you're listening from the UK, this, this, you've possibly heard of this in the news, but it was certainly news to us down here. Um, and so from then on, the podcast gets into basically the, the, the quite sordid details of um, how these undercover operations uh, came about. And also um, th- why they occur. Mm. So one of the discussions that goes on in the podcast is why were undercover cops infiltrating left-wing groups that did not appear to be involved in criminal behaviour. Because it's one thing if, say, you're on the anti-terror squad and you've got the fear of a terrorist event, so you infiltrate a group to find out what they're going to do next to stop them. But notably, when it came to these left-wing activist groups, whether they be animal rights groups, environmentalist groups, they actually weren't doing anything illegal per se. So there's a good question... Why are you surveilling people who are engaged in perfectly legal behavior? And the story that's told in Bed of Lies is that after the Cold War, there was basically funding for enforcement, and there really wasn't a clear idea of what that funding would go towards. So a new target was looked at, which is left-wing activists, And it seems that the biggest motivation for we need to constrain and know what these people are up to is the defense of capitalism. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they looked at, there had been at the time some big sort of anti-capitalist protests. I remember, when when was the Chogham protests here? Was Was that late 90s? I think yeah, that was one yeah, of the yeah, it's, it's after we've started uni. So yeah, it must be mm. it must be after I've started, so post ninety six. Maybe ninety seven, yeah, so, ninety eight. Mm. So there had been sort of big protests of big organizations like APEC and we had Chogham here. I can't remember what Chogham stands for, but um, and th- those those definitely got rowdy. I mean, there was you sort of had the hardcore activists up the front who'd be trying to sort of you know start some shit with the with the riot police or or, or break through barriers and make trouble. But I'm not aware of any actual um, certainly no deaths happening there um, and, and not much in the way of violence. And indeed, it wasn't it wasn't just your sort of your hardcore anarchist. Um, uh, anti-capitalist types who are being infiltrated. It was basically any activist organisations on the left. You had them infiltrating environmentalist groups and um, animal rights activists and things like that. The whole, the whole left sort of getting tarred with one brush. Yeah. Um, and at this point, 
at this point, um, they they start to bring in a um, the the journalist behind this, Kara McGugan, starts talking with a man who uh, was a former undercover police officer who has since become something of a whistleblower on the way things are done. He he went undercover in criminal organisations, so he wasn't actually one of the people um, who 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 did this exact sort of thing. But he but was asked also, to join. He was, yes, no, that's true, and he he sort of said, no, that's not what that's that's not what the police is for. Essentially, he's like, why would we be doing that? That's not that's not police work. It's not our job to defend capitalism. Um, but they did source that what was basically the instruction manual for. So you're an undercover police officer in a left wing organisation, and that was quite the eye opener. It was. So first of all, it talks about the idea that tech. Technically, officers shouldn't get into long-term relationships because they would be short and disastrous, and they certainly shouldn't get involved in sexual relationships with any of the people. But sometimes things will happen. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more. Mm, yes, it's sort of... Yeah, that, that phrase, short and disastrous, I think was used a couple of times in, in, in the sense of if you do get into if you do get into a relationship with someone, if if you're in the situation where someone's keen on you and it would be a bit weird if you just turned them away completely and you don't want to blow your cover, then yes, relationships are okay, but you should you should see to it that they end quickly. And yes, again, you know, if a woman's really into you and wants to have sex with you, and maybe you know, it, it might it might seem weird if you turn her down, and well, you know, you don't want to blow your cover, so you might just have to go and have sex with woman. Yeah, we're we're not saying job. that you can't have sex on the job. We're simply saying that we'll frown upon you having sex on the job. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. Say no more. Mm. Now, this manual was actually written by one of the men in question. Um, he was they, the man Andy, who was always referred to as Andy Van, because the most uh, the, the the characteristic about him everyone remembered was he was the guy with the van, and we'll get into vans shortly. And now um, he's a councillor in some part mm. of the UK, so yep, has yeah, he's a, gone a very senior position. Mm. Um, so this the manual all the way through refers to the activists that you're targeting as wearies and at one point she's like what, what is this wearies what does it actually mean and she asks the police officer the former undercover police officer that she's been talking to what, what's wearies and he's like I, I don't know exactly what it means in this context but he has re referred to had heard things sort of cases being referred to as wearies which are just the the wearying ones the ones that were a bit of a chore um and so it's while well, he's not hundred percent certain exactly where they get wearies from and what, what why they're using that term, it's pretty clear that it's not a compliment. And um, also, it's fairly clear as as we find out towards the end of the podcast that the men in question were not left wingers. So as soon as they leave the activist no. circles, they go back to being quite conservative right wing men. So you can imagine them going, actually, it's quite a wearying job pretending to care about things like animals, the environment, and the welfare of other people. Very wearying. Mm. 
Um, and so the more they go through this manual, the more the the weird things, the weird similarities between all these relationships that they talk about start to make sense. So I mean, obviously the whole the whole um, I have a, a troubled past and I'm distant from my family um, is a good way of just maintaining your cover. If you you don't have to. Uh, obviously, you wouldn't want to be introducing people to your actual family members because they probably don't know that you're an un that you're undercover. They, as far as they know, you're still a cop, um, and so you don't you don't want to be in a situation where people would be wanting to meet your family. Um, so you you make it make out as though you're distant to them. You don't really have a relationship with them. They live very far away, um, and so. The is there's always an excuse for why you don't have to have anything to do with their family. Um, and then and th then it got to the vans. Explain to me vans. Why is it important that they all drove a van? Because, Josh, if you're involved in left-wing activism, then these wearies, they're going to be very demanding of your time. They're going to want you to do things. Now, if you have a van, you can be the transportation person, which means you can ferry people from events and back from events without actually having to get involved in the event itself. So if it turns out that these wearying left-wing activists are going to do something which is illegal or quasi-illegal, you've got a justification to be sitting in the van doing nothing whatsoever. So it has the handy thing of allowing you to escape any legal consequences of being involved mm. in process protest action. It also means you can kind of get involved in the wider community because if you've got a van, these wearies are going to want you to help move house or move furniture around, which means it makes it even easier for you to integrate into the group. So owning a van keeps you out of trouble and actually helps you infiltrate the group at the same time. Mm. Yes, that was one of the things in the manuals where it's, it, it is quite disparaging of these these wearies who you're going to be infiltrating, and one of the things he says is, essentially, give them an inch and they'll take a mile. If if you if you offer if if you offer to do any of them a favour, they'll definitely take you up on it, and then want to want you to do that for them again from then on afterwards. Um, it also talks about the whole handyman thing, saying that's a that's a way you can sort of integrate yourself into the group by making yourself useful as as a guy who can rewire this or or fix this plumbing or build that or what have you. But of course, it says you know make sure you can actually do that because once you once you get a reputation for being a guy who can build stuff or fix stuff or whatever, all those sponging wearies are going to be wanting you to do it all the time. And so Indeed, yeah, apparently all these guys are quite proficient. One particular built a kitchen. Yeah, and it took him a year, which indicates that mm. he very much was learning on the job. Now, the mm. breakdowns are interesting. So your first reaction when you heard about the breakdowns was to think that they were a kind of a logical consequence of these men being undercover, wasn't it? Yeah, well, the first time they came out, like, by, by this point... Like I think, I think even if you actually just read about the Beard of Lies podcast, you, you'd know it was about undercover police officers. I don't think they'd actually come up with the with the proof positive that these men were police officers, but it, it was pretty clear reading between the lines that was what was going on. So when they told these stories about finding these guys having panic attacks and so on, my 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 assumption was, oh, okay, that's that's the pressure of the job, right? That's that's them 
you know, having panic attacks because of having to live this double life 24 hours a day and always being worried about getting caught out and, you know, and, and, and have, but yet still having to give the goods um, back to your superiors and so on. So I, I had assumed that these were genuine breakdowns that were happening because of the stresses of the job. Um, but it seems I was, I was being overly generous. No. So in, in the manual, they talk about you were doing a four year tour. And of course, at the end of your four years, we'll extract you from your service and you'll go back to normal life. Now, of course, you can't just disappear completely. That's going to raise questions. You need to set up your exit plan about halfway through. So fake a breakdown of some description. And then in the last year of your tour, start raising questions about whether you feel comfortable with what you're doing, whether you want to do other things with your lives, so that when it comes the time to be extracted, you've set up the idea that you've had one mental breakdown before, and thus your disappearance can be explained by, oh, it must be another mental issue, that's why they've disappeared. So it was an mm. entire and elaborate act. Mm. But as we've seen, of course, they, they didn't end up deterring um, these women from wondering what had happened to them and, and actually because going to track them down. Because these men were having long-term sexual relationships, mm. sometimes involving children. Sometimes involving children. Yes, that, that was that was the nastiest one. That was the one you talked about before, where like several in several instances, um, these women were able to get in touch with these guys again and confront them. And I think one of them had what was essentially a, like an intervention sort of situation where she got all her friends around her to make sure that she wouldn't sort of um, buckle and and try to take his word for it or or think about forgiving him and they got this guy down there and he sort of started spinning a line about what happened until one of them basically said yeah so when did you join the police force at which point he sort of knew the jig was up but in this other case where she met him again in the bookshop he basically he just kept on spinning the story he was like yes I am a police officer I was undercover but I want to get out but they won't let me get out and he ended up make, forming this this out and out abusive relationship with her where he insisted that this was the guy who fathered children uh, with, with the woman as well, um, insisted that her and the kids would have to be locked out, stay in home all the time because it was too risky for her to go out and so on. And eventually when she realized just what's the, 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 the severity of the situation she was in, she took the kids and went to a shelter and, and broke off contact with them completely. But um we haven't actually. I mean, that, that that's pretty dodgy. I don't think we've got to the dodgiest parts of the um, of the official procedure yet. All right, There's Josh, the whole the, the whole identity us. thing. Yeah. Oh yeah, actually. So that's yeah. yeah, the that, manual. That's, that's the yeah, second yeah, dodgiest. Yeah, yeah. So the manual talks about the idea that early on in the program, these officers engaged in identity theft. So they would look for a case of a child who died young. I suppose all children die young. A person who died well, as a child. All children who die, die young, yes. And then 
of the same name, so the same first name, because there's this whole and around thing around the about, same birth yeah, date. Yeah. So to make it easy to not be caught out, if you choose a completely different first name, then you might not react when you're called by that name, or you might react when someone uses your actual first name. You want a birth date which is very similar, so that you don't have accidents about your birth date you might be able to get away with fudging the year you were born but forgetting the day and month is another thing entirely and so they would steal these identities with the permission of the british state to construct brand new identities now it turns out most people actually frown upon identity theft of dead children and occasionally it also comes a cropper when suddenly you might actually bump into a family member or someone decides to look into your past and is able to find a family member who's moved town, at which point they might go, oh, but uh, I believe they died at the age of five. So eventually they gave up on identity theft and they just decided to do what they should have done the entire time and just invent personalities from whole cloth. Mm. Yeah, so th th it was quite elaborate, really, of uh, exactly what you want to look for in a fake identity. It would be, you know, you, you want a child about the same age as you, died young, not died at birth, because apparently there would be records of that. Someone who died as a child, not so tragically that it would have made the papers, just someone who, I, I, I don't know, I, I assume that, so, so, so not someone who would have sort of died in a tragic accident or have you, I guess, just a child who, who died of a terminal illness or something that or might have been... died of sudden infant death syndrome, something mm. of that particular type. Yeah, so tragic, but not so tragic that, the, that, it, that it would have made the news. Um, and, I mean, that that's not... That, that, that's not in any way particular to this this program. That's sort of been a staple, I think, of, of spycraft for a long time. I know there was a case here in New Zealand some years ago where some Israeli spies had got caught stealing the identity of dead New Zealand children or something for their, their fake spying identities, and that caused a bit of a, a diplomatic stink, but at the, even at the time it was sort of, yeah, this is kind of how, how we do it sometimes. And don't forget um, the ACT MP who engaged in a bit of child hmm. identity theft. That was David Garrett? I don't recall, but yes, I remember, I, I forget who it was, but I remember that happening, yeah. Yeah, so that was, I mean, so, so as you say, it's it's... It's a thing that was done, but it's obviously quite distasteful. And when it came out publicly that that happened, that was a good enough reason for them to, to stop it. But I think now we need to come to the, the dodgiest, the dodgiest part of this. Now, you recall I said earlier that they found a current marriage certificate for one of these guys. Um, and he was indeed married and had been married the entire time with a family who he was, you know, on those times when he had sort of, you know, had to go away for whatever reason, that would be him off visiting his actual family. Um, turns out all the guys were married and it turns out that's not a coincidence. Yes, because they were required to be married. Yep. Yes, so I think there was a bit of a worry that they would they would go native, um, that they might, you know, always a danger when you're when you're living amongst these people for so long. What if you became sympathetic to their cause, and what if you ended up, you know, deciding to, um, as that one guy pretended to do, want to pack in your life as a police officer and actually 
take up with these people who you've been living amongst for years. And so one way to ensure that that wouldn't happen was make sure that they had a life to go back to afterwards. If they had an actual wife and children to go back to, then that would give them an anchor to stop them from, from getting caught up in their cover. Um, and so, yeah, these people who had been getting into long-term relationships, had been getting into sexual relationships with women, were married with children the entire time. And now, this supposedly that requirement's not there anymore? No. So, but this also explained their work behaviour, because they would spend the night with their partners, and then they would get up early to go to work. And it seems that when they were getting up early to go to work, they were driving home to spend time with their actual wife and children before then going into the office at the Metropolitan Police Station to work on whatever they were doing at work as police officers and then clocking off in the afternoon or evening to then go and spend time with the woman whose life they'd infiltrated and crucially at least in the four cases covered in bed of lies the actual wives had no idea this was going mm. on yes so indeed when this came out i believe uh, divorces resulted once these women found out that while undercover these guys what exactly what their their husbands had been up to um, and so, yes, I mean, we've been talking about the guys and what they did, um, but of course, the effect on the woman uh, involved w was devastating. You had these women who sort of basically talked about, you know, I don't have a family, I don't have children, and a large part of that is because I spent a good chunk of my 20s living with this guy who I thought was the one who then disappeared on me, and then spent a decent chunk of my 30s trying to catch him down and discovering and, and processing the fact that my entire life was a lie, and now I can't even, you know, contemplate the idea of getting seriously involved with someone again. There was, you know, PTSD, there was, there, there was genuine mental trauma um, as a result of, of finding out that these relationships that you were in were were a complete lie. Now, Josh, um, and so yes, a public inquiry has taken place. What what did the police officers say in response to these charges of you have ruined the lives of many a woman? Well, yes. So, so there's, there, there is an inquiry. It's all come out. There's, these people have been interviewed. It's sort of become part of the record. And, and basically, the guys were just, just kind of complained about how hard things were for them. At, at how now that this inquiry has come out, how they're being raked over the coals, and some of them claim that they're, they're sort of being scapegoated for the fact that their department's procedures um, were, were, were faulty and defective. And basically, they didn't really seem to acknowledge the harm that they had done and were mostly just concerned about the fact, oh, my wife left me just because she found out I'd been having sex with other women for years. Uh, and lying you know, to they, they her and them mm. about it the entire time. Oh, woe is didn't, me. Didn't seem to be a lot of contrition. Um, so the inquiry, I believe there has been, as a result of the inquiry, there has been an official apology to the woman, um, but it didn't sound like there's been much more than that. No. Now, in part, this is because the consequences of the inquiry are still ongoing. That's one frustrating part of Bed of Lies, is it It just kind of ends, and there's no mm. real feeling resolution. But I think that might be the point. I don't think there ever can be actual resolution in a case like this. 
because the damage done is so horrific that apologies or compensation really are never going to pass muster anyway. Mm. And that's basically where where we end things. Um, <clears throat> again, very much recommend that you go and listen to the podcast yourself because, I mean, it's one thing to hear the two of us just sort of describe it, but the podcast itself consists mostly of interviews with the woman in question um, with sort of narration from Cara McGugan, also interviews with the undercover police officer. And then, yes, at one point, she does talk to one of the officers involved, the, the notorious Andy Van, who had since gone on to become, uh, to, to get involved in politics. And she is able to get in touch with him. And he's basically, he's very pleasant and doesn't, doesn't come across as particularly defensive. But essentially, the, the whole thing is just, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I, I just can't talk about that because it's all the inquiries underway. Um, you know, legally, I can't, I can't give you the answers to your questions. I'm sorry. And he's very pleasant, but he doesn't, uh, certainly doesn't appear to express much remorse and, and doesn't really give any, any substantive answers. No, it sounds as if he had been very well instructed by his solicitor that the answer to every question <clears throat> is there's an ongoing inquiry and we will see the results of that in time. Mm. Um, and so there you go. Um, I should say, as a, as a bit of a coda to this, um, so Em sent me the link to this podcast, and I sort of listened to it over the course of a week or so. Um, and then afterwards, I uh, was at home and said to my wife, oh, I, I listened to this, I listened to this interesting podcast. It was all about these women in England um, who were left-wing activists who discovered that these guys they'd been having long-term relationships with were actually under, undercover cops. And my wife, who's always been a bit of a lefty and sort of knew the activist crowd in her university days, instantly replied, oh, yeah, I know someone here who that happened to. Um, so it's, it's, it's not... Uh, it's certainly not not an, not an isolated case, I think. And indeed, th those four cases are the are, are the case studies. They're the ones where they've actually, you know, had had the material and the the, the participants who are willing to be interviewed at length. Um, I didn't actually get a sense from the podcast exactly how how widespread this tactic was, but I'm fairly certain it was more than just these four cases. But actually, there's an interesting part in one of the last three episodes where when when it gets revealed that one of the partners is a police officer, he really wants to stress to his partner, oh, no, no, I'm the only one. Because by that point in time, there's a whole bunch of rumours going on that isn't it curious that every time we hold a protest, there are police officers around it's almost as if there are people informing on our activities with inside information. So it suddenly becomes a conspiracy of, I've been outed and I'm trying to control how much this person says. What we definitely don't want is for someone to then go, oh, 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 but there might be more. We need to really stress there's only one infiltrator. It's me. And also, by the way, you can't talk about it. So there probably were an mm. awful lot of infiltrators, especially given how long the program was going on for and the four-year exactly, tours. Yeah. Mm. Yep, so there we go. Uh, definitely give it a listen if you'd like to learn more about the story. Um, I'd certainly recommend it. Uh, but I think that's, that's really all we can say um, in a single episode of our podcast. Uh, any, any, any closing thoughts? 
Yes, other than what the police officers did was deplorable. I mean, mm, it's, and yes, I mean, no. the thing which makes it particular. I mean, as a police abolitionist, I'm going to say this anyway. But what makes this particularly deplorable is the fact that they weren't investigating criminal activity; they were simply investigating activism. And of course, as we've seen in the US, particularly around the insurrection of the Capitol back in July. Uh, July? July of this year? We haven't even hit July yet. I mean, this year's turning out to be oh, as long as last this. year. As we saw in January of this year, it turns out that police forces in the US, like the UK, and unfortunately, like here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, think of left-wingers as dangerous and right-wingers as their natural allies. So they simply treat the idea that there are people out there who are fighting for equality the environment and the rights of animals as being a threat to the natural order. Whilst when people turn up with guns in your nation's capital, you end up going, oh, they're not a real threat. I mean, they're right-wingers. They're just like us. And that's a problem. Mm. That's a massive problem in the West. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the thing. And they talked to the, the undercover guy who was approached about this. I mean, his, his attitude, even, even this, this guy who was an actual police officer, had the attitude of, why are we doing this? How is this the job of the police? We're, you know, we're, we're, we're not, it's not like going undercover in a criminal organisation. These, most of the time, you know, apart from maybe a bit of vandalism or something, these, these people aren't really breaking laws. Um, so yes, it seems like sort of the sort of thing that probably never should have happened, and definitely never should have happened the way that it happened. Um, and I think that's all we have uh, for you this in, in this main episode. But we do have we do have a bonus episode, and I can tell you one thing for sure: it involves sausage. And not just that; it involves the murder of a sausage king, and a sausage king who is a murderer. So if you want to sling us at least a dollar a month towards getting access to these things, you can find out about not one, but two Sausage Kings and the murders associated with said Sausage Kings. Mm. Um, So for now, we will bid you a sausage-free farewell. Uh, before going on to to sausage up for the bonus episode. Um, So for now, I think it's simply goodbye for me. And it's sausages from me to you. Mmm, sausages. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy is Josh Addison and me, Dr. M.R.X. Dentith. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember, the truth is out there, but not quite where you think you left it.